The Common Good presents a special conversation with Ambassador Robert Ford, former U.S. Ambassador to Syria, on the Syrian Civil War and Insight. All right, let me, uh, let's begin by me introducing myself. I'm Robert Petersack. I'm a partner here at Sidley Austin. And we welcome you here, uh, both to Sidley Austin, but more importantly, to the Common Good. Uh, the world is very different today than it was when the Common Good started about 10 years ago. Uh, what was then diplomatic dialogue has now become shouting matches. And it's basically devolved into being Twitter insults against And we see that along with that is continuing violence around the world. Admittedly, a lot of it started earlier, as our guest tonight, our speaker tonight, will clearly make that only clear. But nevertheless, it is violence that seems to be getting worse with less and less hope of resolution because we haven't learned to speak to each other. And that is what the common good is all about. It's about civil dialogue. It's about people who have differences talking to each other and trying to work things out. And that is the kind of thing that is the philosophy behind both the common good and what ambas the ambassador Ford uh, did in Syria and many ambassadors and diplomats around the world are continuing to do. So we offer some hope here at the common good, that things can move forward and can get, get to a point where actually issues can be resolved in a civil way. And we try to encourage that by our multiple speakers. We've had heads of state, we've had secretaries of state from both parties in the United States, we've had uh, writers, we've had act actors and actresses, we've had an incredible group. And if you look at the common group brochure, common good brochure, uh, if you have in here, you'll see an incredible list of people from Bill Clinton to all directions who have spoken here. Uh, we have a number of events coming up that will continue that uh, history of, of public discourse on significant issues. Uh, tomorrow we have Carl Dean, the candidate governor of, uh, in the Democratic Party in Tennessee. Richard Gordon will be posting that. All the details will be either in the book or we will be happy to get you out of the desk. On Monday, November 20th, Dr. Lawrence Rock, Rocks, who is an energy expert and chemist, will discuss hurricanes, climate, and responsible energy policies for the future. That will be hosted by Richard Farley. Indeed, a very, very uh, important issue right now. On December 7th, Gina Griswold, uh, Secretary of State candidate for the Democratic Party in Colorado, will be speaking. On January 24th, public intellectual and president of Nexus Institute of the Netherlands will discuss the fight against the sage on fascism, fascism and humanism. I'll get that right eventually. Uh, on Thursday, February 8th, there will be a special screening. Uh, we do this from time to time, and we're very pleased to have this screening of a documentary entitled Letters from Baghdad, which has been very well received. There will be question and answer on that, both with filmmakers, uh, various experts, including General John Allen. So these are some of the things that are coming up. Um, 
and we will uh, have more details on that going forward. Uh, we'd also like to recognize that there are, num there are a couple of very distinguished guests here. Uh, Richard Ravage, former Lieutenant Governor of New York, is here. Richard, where are you? Uh, as well as Franz Leichter. Franz, where are you? Who is a former Assemblyman of Senator in New York for many years. Um, and Judith Miller, where's Judith? There's Judith Miller. And author of, of many of many books. Um, more you She's not. Okay. Okay. And there were apparently two others who will arrive. <laughs> but let me move on to the person who will introduce you to tonight's speaker, Maureen White. Uh, Maureen White is a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute at John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. She has served as a senior advisor to the State Department on humanitarian issues, and she has represented the United States at the United Nations Children's Fund from 1997 to 2001. She has also served as national finance chair of the Democratic National Committee from 2001 to 6 and National Finance Co-Chair of the Hillary Clinton for President campaign in 2008. Prior to that, she had a career in international economic research in New York, London, and Tokyo. So to make the formal introduction of our speaker tonight, Maureen White. Um, of course, it's an honor for me to introduce Ambassador Robert Ford tonight. He has been, um, I think he represents the highest of what our foreign service has to offer. And he's also been a personal hero of mine for many years. Um, as you know, he is a Mideast expert, and he has served for 30 years in the State Department and in the Peace Corps in the Middle East, in Algeria as ambassador, in Bahrain, Cameroon, Egypt, Turkey, Morocco. In Iraq, he served three different times between 2003 and 2010 during the war in Iraq, and his last post there was as deputy ambassador. From there, he went in the momentous year of 2011 to Syria as ambassador and served there from 2011 to 2014. And although this isn't in his um, official biography, I think you should note a personal distinction, an honorable distinction that Ambassador Ford made, and that is when he chose to leave the Foreign Service because of um, his objections to the policy or lack thereof on the part of the administration in Syria. Um, it's a very difficult thing to leave one's lifelong career. But I think um, if it's any consolation, history usually looks favorably on, on those who chose to follow the courage of their convictions and to serve principle rather than personal interest. And so far, Ambassador, Sir, Ambassador Ford has been honored on many occasions in this country. He did receive the Presidential Honor Award for his leadership in the embassy in Syria and Damascus. 
and he also received the Secretary of State's Distinguished Service Award, which is the department's highest award. And he also was um, received the um, Profile and Courage Award from the John F. Kennedy Library in Boston. Now, Ambassador Ford serves as a scholar at the Mideast Institute, where he continues to write and speak about the Mideast. And he also serves as a fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute, where I'm hoping he has an influence on young people and wants them to perhaps serve the country and perhaps to serve in the Foreign Service. I noticed in my reading about Ambassador Ford that his two bits of advice to young people are to learn a foreign language fluently and spend some time abroad in other countries. I was pleased that two of my four children had followed his advice of going abroad, and it has had a definable and positive impact on me. But as for the language thing, we're not doing so well. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's my honor to introduce Ambassador Robert Ford. Thank you, Maureen. Very nice. No, not at all. No, thank you. Well, it's a delight to be here, and let me thank Robert and Patricia Duff um, for inviting me to speak before the common good tonight. It's a very auspicious, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a very distinguished organization. I'm, I'm not sure why I'm at a podium where people like Bill Clinton and Secretary Kerry have spoken. And uh, Patricia was pretty strict with me. She said, now you get to speak for not more than 25 minutes about Syria. And I said, well, maybe 45. And she said, no, 25. <laughs> and I, she was quite firm about it on the telephone. And it reminded me of the story of a British archaeologist at the turn of uh, the last century in London, in Edwardian London. And the archaeologist was retiring after a career uh, in British academia and out in the field in South Asia studying temples and ancient languages and lost cities. And at his retirement, the British Museum invited him to give a talk. Um, but they told the British archaeologist, uh, no more than 30 minutes, professor. And he said, no, no, come on, it's the end of my, I've got a lot to say after decades of research. And he, they said, no, 30 minutes. And he complained to his friend, young Oscar Wilde, and said, how can I possibly how can I possibly explain everything I know in just 30 minutes? And Oscar Wilde said, well, speak slowly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm going to speak slowly. That's actually, that's the only fun thing I have to say tonight. Uh, the, Syria is, in fact, I think, the greatest tragedy of the new century. Um, the number of people who have been displaced from their homes uh, is now half the population. Uh, it's almost 11 million, including 5 million refugees. Um, the scale of human suffering, and I wouldn't have believed it possible uh, back in 2011 and 2012, scale of human suffering has now exceeded that of the, the Iraqis during the, the horrible fighting there. Um, it is a human tragedy of, of unimaginable proportions. Last night at Yale University, we showed a film uh, by a, a Syrian-American producer named Sam Kadi called Little Gandhi about the nonviolent 
elements of the Syrian opposition and how they have just been overtaken uh, by the brutality of the Syrian government. I'm not going to look backwards. I'm going to be looking forwards and I'm doing that for a specific reason. There is now in Washington a fairly substantial debate about what to do next in Syria. The Syrian civil wars has really in some ways finished and we have, we the Americans, have somewhere between 500 and 1,000 troops on the ground. That started during President Obama. Um, and the question is what to do next. Um, and this gets into the Trump administration's questions about what to do about Iran. And so I'm going to briefly review the broader Syrian civil war, but then I want to specifically talk about this question of what do the Americans do next. Um, and I'm concerned about the slippery slope issue, that we get into something that had unanticipated consequences. I um, taught uh, my undergraduate class about U.S. foreign policy a couple of weeks ago. We spent a, a session on Vietnam. And um, a lot of what Bob McNamara said about the Vietnam War 50 years ago, after he turned against the war, left the Defense Department, um, bears striking similarities to what I'm seeing in Syria now. I'm going to go through that a little bit with you. So, um, if I can advance this. Great. Um, first, go back, yeah. The Syrian civil war really has two parts. It has a part in the western part of the country, near the Mediterranean Sea. That war is pretty much ending. Uh, the Bashar al-Assad government has won with great help from Iran and from Russia. The fighting is uh, dying down. Um, on this map, if you look in the western part of the country, um, Assad now has consolidated his control around Damascus. There's one suburb of Damascus holding out in uh, the eastern part of Damascus, being heavily bombed. Um, but in other parts of this western part of the country, the major city of Homs in the west center, and on up to Aleppo, Assad has taken it all. And he's also taken down in the south as well going down towards the Jordanian border. He controls that entire strip now. Basically, there's an international highway that goes from Jordan up to Turkey, right through western Syria. You can think of it, if you will, as the I-95 of Syria. It is the transport hub. Assad controls it comfortably. So he's not going anywhere. The Russians have proposed and are working out with Iran and with Turkey for de-escalation zones. They're the red dots on these maps. You can see that they are in the western parts of the country. Um, they basically ensure Assad's control of the areas. What the government of Syria is doing is in those ceasefire areas, they will take little villages here and there. They keep advancing. It's not really a ceasefire. Uh, the government simply obeys the ceasefire, say, in the area in the far south of the country, near the Jordanian border, and they shift the troops up to the north, and they keep attacking in the north. They violate these de-escalation zones. The Russians can't stop them. 
which tells you a lot about Russian leverage. Uh, and so the government continues little by little to advance. Um, it is a very step-by-step -step process. But the opposition is losing. In fact, I would go so far as to say the opposition has lost. The implication of this, of course, is that Bashar al-Assad stays. His government stays in power. It's corrupt, it's brutal, it's used chemical weapons, it's bombed hospitals, committed all sorts of war crimes according, don't listen to me, listen to the United Nations. Uh, they've cataloged it. Um, he will probably never be held accountable, nor will his lieutenants. It's a pretty depressing outcome, I have to say. Um, and Russia and Iran have thoroughly consolidated their position in the country. Russia has a new air base, which they didn't have six years ago. The Iranians now have 50,000 fighters. Not so many of them Iranians, a couple thousand, but mostly Iraqis and Afghanistans, Afghanistanis, Afghans, who they brought to fight in Syria. And they're stationed, as I said, most of them in the western part of the country. Um, those of you who pay attention to Israeli security issues will understand that the pro-Iranian Hezbollah militia has also solidly reinforced its position in western Syria, up close to the Golan, as well as Lebanon. Um, and so Israel now faces a greater security danger from Hezbollah than it did six or seven years ago. Um, but the Americans aren't over in the West. They never have been. They never have been. We have been fighting the Islamic State out in the eastern part of Syria. Basically in the area from the Iraq border to about halfway across uh, the Syrian desert. That shaded area is basically where our forces have been operating with allies on the ground, Syrian fighters on the ground that we advise and arm. Now, the good news is that we have made huge progress against the Islamic State. This um, gray area on this map, the gray area is what the Islamic State controlled in August of 2015. Look how the gray area has shrunk uh, through the end of September. I'm sorry, I couldn't get a map for October. Um, big difference between August and September. And what that means is the Islamic State has less capacity to recruit fighters. It means the Islamic State has less capacity to impose taxes and extort money from populations under its control. It doesn't control as many populations. It has lost control of oil fields that generated money for it. It is absolutely a major achievement of the United States to have made so much progress against the Islamic State. And since this map, the gray shaded areas, Islamic State controlled areas, have shrunk further. Um, just today, the last major stronghold of the Islamic State in Syria was surrounded. Um, it's way down on the corner, uh, the southeast corner of Syria on Iraq, that very farthest point southeast. That was just surrounded today. Um, 
the Russians and their air force have been operating in the west, helping Bashar al-Assad, as I said. We have been operating in the east against the Islamic State. The Euphrates River, which you can see on this map, has been the sort of dividing line agreed between Moscow and Washington. Um, the Americans and the American Air Force operate on the east side of the river, between the Euphrates and the Iraq border. And the Russians and the Syrian government, the Iranians operate on the west side of the river. That has been an informal agreement uh, between Moscow and Washington for months. As the Islamic State, as I mentioned, its last major stronghold was surrounded today. Um, as it collapses, probably will move into an insurgency mode, uh, keep fighting, but it won't control major cities the way it did. Um, but now we're at a, at a real crossroads. What do we do next? Do we just say the war is over? But is the war over? And in particular, what will we do with the people who have been helping us against the Islamic State? The most important people in Syria who have been helping us against the Islamic State are Syrian Kurds. They're not Arabs, they're Kurds. Speak Kurdish, they have their own cultural traditions, their own social organizations. They are very sensitive politically and in the region. And so whether or not we help them, it, it will have echoes and ramifications for a series of relationships we have in the Middle East. As you think about this, just a piece of background. When Barack Obama ordered American forces into Syria in September 2014, so just over three years ago, he started out with just airstrikes. Barack Obama was very cautious about deploying US forces overseas. I think he must have read McNamara's book somewhere in the past. Um, since then, we have deployed special operations forces to go up to the front lines and help call in airstrikes with those Syrian Kurds I mentioned. We have also sent in a Marine Artillery Regiment. That's roughly 500 men who've deployed into Syria. They were actually in the fighting in the city of Raqqa, uh, which fell about roughly a month ago. Um, and we are now even deployed as peacekeepers up in northern Syria, um, pretty much to the north east of Aleppo, we have a special operations regiment deployed as peacekeepers between Syrian Kurdish forces, Syrian Arab forces, Syrian government forces, and Syrian Turkish forces. How many of you knew we had peacekeepers in Syria? A handful. Um, they've come under fire twice. They have not yet been hit. We've had no casualties, happily. But what started out as air raids has expanded into even things like, not just artillery, but even peacekeeping. The reason, the reason that the Syrian Kurds think they are going to want our help is because they expect the Syrian government will attack them next. Remember, the Syrian government has been fighting mostly in the west. But this yellow area on this map, that's what the Syrian Kurds control with our help. We actually have a no-fly zone over that area. 
the United States Air Force does not allow anybody to come fly in there. Um, and we've had that no-fly zone for over a year. Again, part of the mission creep. That was not the original Obama uh, military operation. If the Syrian government attacks these Syrian Kurds, and Bashar al-Assad has said he will reassert control over that area, the Syrian Kurds want us to help. Now, will Assad actually do that? Maybe he's just threatening. He might be. But the Syrian Kurds' territory has about half of the oil in Syria. It's way up there in the northeast, very close to the Turkish border in the northeast quadrant of Syria. Assad needs that oil money very badly. You have seen the pictures of the destruction of Syria. He needs that funding. So we have to decide, are we going to help them or not? By the way, Ali Akbar Vilayati, the national security advisor to Ayatollah Khamenei, the supreme leader in Iran, two days ago said the Syrian government's next move will be against the Syrian Kurdish held areas starting at Raqqa and Iran will support them. So if we're going to help the Syrian Kurds, we need to understand we very well could get into a confrontation not just with Bashar al-Assad, but also with Iran. There are some people in the Trump administration who say, bring it. We're ready to fight Iran. My question to you all is, does that make sense? Remember, if you want to roll back Iranian influence in Syria, the real concern is over by Israel. It's in the western part of the country, way over in Damascus, down by the Golan Heights near Israel. That's where the, the threat to Israel is, above all else. This is way over in northeastern Syria. The Iranians don't really need to control that area to access Damascus. They've been flying in weapons to Hezbollah for 30 years without controlling that northeastern part of Syria. Why do we want to try to fight the Iranians in northeastern Syria? What's strategic about it? When I went out as ambassador to Syria in 2011, I asked about these Kurds who live up there. This is before the uprising. The CIA couldn't give me five paragraphs of information about the political leaderships and social structures of those Syrian Kurds. I'm not blaming the CIA. That area was closed off. The government would not allow uh, diplomats and uh, foreign officials up in there. If you were an archaeologist, you could go do digs, but you couldn't, as a diplomat, you could not go up there. So I don't blame the CIA for not knowing about it, but it wasn't a problem. It wasn't strategically important to us. So is this the place to confront Iran? As I said, uh, oh, I just, I want to point, does anybody know, in the picture on the left, does anybody know who that man in the military uniform is? Sir. Suleimani. Yeah, Qasem Soleimani. For those who don't know, Qasem Soleimani, the man on the left side of that picture next to Assad, he's probably the most powerful person in the Middle East right now. He's in charge of Iran's special operations forces. Um, and he is the one who has organized the 50,000 pro-Iranian fighters in Syria. He is the one who's helped organize Bashar al-Assad's own forces to put down the armed uprising. He's the one who flew to Moscow and convinced the Russians to send their air force in 2015. Um, he's both a diplomat and he's a real fighter. He goes up to the front lines and, and there are pictures of him up on the front lines. He was just down 
in southeastern Syria at the start of the week. When I mentioned about the last stronghold of the Islamic State being surrounded, his guys were the ones coming in from Iraq, surrounding it on the eastern side. So he's extremely influential. He is not going to leave Syria without a bitter fight. They have escalated and escalated. So the idea that we're going to roll them back easily, Qasem Soleimani probably will vehemently disagree. As I said, the Iranian forces are already deployed in, uh, well throughout the western part of the country, close to Israel, close to Lebanon. Of course, they go in and out of Lebanon with Hezbollah. Now the other argument for helping the Syrian Kurds is a different argument, which is we need to help them because after the Islamic State is defeated, well, the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda will probably organize an insurgency. And those Syrian Kurds will help fight back that Sunni Arab Islamic insurgency. This picture, by the way, is a picture of a guy named uh, Jolani. He is the head of Al-Qaeda in Syria. He's still at large, still pretty powerful. He's located in northwestern Syria. But the anticipation is that his men, Al-Qaeda, will begin to recruit after the Islamic State collapses in its last areas in eastern Syria. So they are, they're saying these Syrian Kurds could be used against the insurgents. I have a real problem with that, and here's why. The Syrian Kurdish fighters are very brave. They're extremely courageous. They've taken a lot of casualties. They are very well organized, and there are parts of their movement that are very attractive to us. For example, in a region which treats women in so badly in so many ways, the Syrian Kurdish political leadership is promoting women's rights and promoting it very, very strongly. Um, you will regularly see pictures of their fighters with women, and women do fight right alongside the men. They fight very courageously. It appeals to our better Western instincts, especially in a place like eastern Syria, which is very conservative, very tribal, um, reminds me a lot of eastern Iraq, places like Fallujah and Ramadi. Uh, the, the Syrian Kurds are revolutionaries. They want to bring real change um, to these areas in eastern Syria, both Kurdish and Arab. But they have another drawback. They're very closely connected to the Kurdish Workers' Party, which is a terrorist organization that has been killing soldiers and civilians in Turkey. This is the picture that they erected in the Arab city of Raqqa two weeks ago. That man in the picture is Abdullah Ocalan. He's on our terrorism list, the United States terrorism list. He's on the European Union's terrorism list. He's on the Turkish government's terrorism list. The Turks are furious at us for backing these people in Syria. They're saying you're using one terrorist group against another. What kind of policy is that? It's very hard to defend against that. So the relationship with Turkey has suffered. Remember also that as these revolutionary Syrian Kurds that we back want to bring change, we might like some of the change. They say they want democracy, they want elections, they want women's rights. But McNamara asked this question in Vietnam in 1968. Do we really understand everybody's motivations? How well do we understand what the Syrian Kurds are trying to do? Are they trying to create an independent state? 
That just went down very badly in Iraq. Do we, are we sort of assuming that the Syrian Kurds are like us? That they're nice guys when they say democracy they mean it? Or does the fact that they jail opposition politicians, the fact that they jail opposition journalists, does that mean maybe they're not so democratic? Are we just backing one gang of thugs? What does it mean to get into a new military confrontation with Iran and Syria and maybe even Russia? Two days ago, the spokesman of the Russian military forces in Syria, the Russian military forces in Syria, publicly said on an Iraqi TV interview, the American help to the Syrian Kurds is illegal under international law. Have we thought through the implications of this? I mean, think about this question. This is being debated in Washington right now. Have we organized ourselves for this? Think about the problems in the State Department right now. In fact, one of my colleagues, Barbara Stevenson, is on PBS NewsHour tonight talking about how the State Department has been decimated by the Tillerson policies. They have lost over half their senior officers. If we're going to get involved in eastern Syria in a new war, don't you think diplomacy is going to be a part with countries like Turkey and Iraq? Do we have Turkish speakers lined up? Do we have Arabic speakers lined up? And do we have the military ready to do it? This is a problem in Vietnam. McNamara highlighted that in his, uh, his memoirs. And finally, do we have public and congressional support lined up for this? If we're going to get into a shooting war in eastern Syria in the next couple of weeks, are you all ready? Has it been debated here in the United States? I think the answer is obvious. So I'm not leaving you with an exact answer to this. I've said there are some big red flags, big red flags that we need to think about. Um, and I'm hoping that over the coming weeks, time is very short on this, I'm hoping uh, that we're going to see some kind of public debate and discussion about what to do in eastern Syria. Um, thank you again very much for your invitation tonight, and I look forward to a good question and answer session. Please identify yourself. I'm Catherine Pitt, and thank you so much for that. I just, I had a quick question about the UN and how significant or detrimental you think the Russia's veto on the Security Council has been in the situation in Syria. The Russians have vetoed six times, and it has slowed down humanitarian aid substantially, so people starve to death because of at least one of their vetoes. Um, two of their vetoes have been specifically aimed at preventing any kind of UN response, international community response, to the Syrian use of chemical weapons. And Assad continues to use chemical weapons. To this day, he is still using them. So I blame the Russians heavily for that. And the Russians have uh, blocked every effort by foreign countries to put some kind of pressure, whether by enhanced sanctions or the threat of military force, um, to compel Bashar al-Assad to negotiate. And Bashar al-Assad has consistently refused any negotiation for political change in Syria. And I think the Russian backing has enabled him to take that hard stance, plus use chemical weapons, plus starve people in opposition areas. So I think Russia bears a heavy responsibility. <coughs>
Let's go with one of our Syrian guests over there. Syrian from Morocco. So I have like some kind of comments and like good questions. So you talked about the Kurdish fighters. So as Syrian, I know that they have relation with the regime. Talking about Mandej and they handed like parts of their controlled area to, to the regime. And they have also good relation with the Russian and the Iranian. And uh, recently, like some of the Kurd Kurdish leaders, they said that they might hand the control of Raqqa city to the regime. Mm -hmm. And then, like talking about these territories, talking about Raqqa and their resort, the regime is there. So talking about the eastern countryside of Raqqa, why like the Syrian regime is fighting there and controlling most of the parts there. Talking about their resort, Bokma, like the last main ISIS stronghold is also cut controlled by the Iranians and the Syrian regime. So, and also talking about the future of Raqqa. So, any cities that uh, the Kurdish fighters and the US forces controlled was left alone. So, talking about many cities. So, they had no plans for the day after, the day after defeating ISIS. And when you say they had no plans, you mean the Americans? The Americans. Yeah. Because they controlled that yeah. area, talking about Raqqa, 90% of the city being destroyed, thousands thousand people were killed, the campaign was not organized at all, it was not a plan, war at all, yeah. and yeah, it was like in the media kind of victory. Last thing, like we, the, we have your question. So, like the future of Raqqa, first of all, the relation between the Kurdish and the regime, Russia, Iran, and then the American strategy has changed with Trump administration. So talking even with Obama administration, the opposition was able to control most part of Syria. And recently with the Trump administration, they stopped the fund, the CRC, stopped the fund for opposition groups. And the main thing, like you mentioned it, mentioned it a bit, like the relation of YBJ with DKK. And also there was the committing We really need a question. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, the, the question is, like, uh, SCF or YBG has been committed a human rights violation, talking about forcing children under 18 to fight ISIS. Yeah. So let me, let me talk about the Syrian Kurds that we've been backing. Um, and um, truth in advertising, uh, Yale University actually has a group of US special operations officers who are doing a project on how to work with the Syrian Kurds. And, um, We've had some lively discussions uh, up at Yale. The Syrian Kurdish forces that we back, we give them weapons, we give them training, we give them money, we give them ammunition, and we've provided some limited amounts of uh, money to help them rebuild their cities, which have been heavily damaged by the fighting with the Islamic State. I mean, places like Kobani up on the Turkish border were absolutely devastated by the fighting. So they look very much to us as their patrons. But they have been accused by Amnesty International in 2015 of ethnic cleansing, getting, uh, raising to the ground, burning Arab villages um, as they try to consolidate control over that northeastern quadrant of Syria that I mentioned. The areas where the Kurds are, in general, are not homogenous. There's like a Kurdish village, Arab village, Kurdish village, Arab village, Christian village. In Iraq, it's very homogenous. Kurd, 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 maybe a Christian village here, Kurd, Kurd, Christian. In Syria, it's very heterogeneous. And there are accusations from groups like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch 
that there's been ethnic cleansing under our watch. Don't hear about that. The Syrian Kurdish political leadership, the people who put up that picture of Abdullah Ocalan, the PKK terrorist group leader, um, they routinely arrest opposition politicians. Actually, some of them I know. Um, they have harassed and shut down uh, opposition, Kurdish opposition uh, newspapers and even radio stations. In some cases, they have burst in um, when people are broadcasting on the radio and hauled people away from the microphones. Um, their fighters are actually can be quite thuggish. Well-trained thugs, um, but thuggish. Um, they have held elections, to be fair to them. Um, they held a first round of local elections at the end of September. Bashar al-Assad's government immediately came out and said, we do not recognize those elections. We will reassert control. And I tend to believe Assad when he says that. Uh, the guy is quite ruthless. We've seen that. And so the real question before us is, as Assad begins to move into those areas, and the, I'm sure some of those Syrian Kurdish fighters that we've trained are going to shoot back, what are we going to do? There is an element in the US military right now pushing to say, we help them. So did you all sign up for that when you signed up for the fight against the Islamic State? Think about it. This is what I mean about mission creep. This is what I mean about slippery slope. Ambassador. Thank you so much. That was an incredible presentation. Uh, Judy was just saying it was one of the best presentations she's ever heard on Syria. Um, you if only you'd given me 35 minutes. <laughs> uh, you, you pulled out the string about you know what we haven't thought about if we stay in. Could you pull the string out a little bit what happens and what the argument is for us staying in? What happens if we do not have a presence in Syria any longer? Yeah. So remember, our presence is over here. The big concern about Syria with places like Israel is over here. We're not over here. Israel's here, but we're not over there. We're going to be over here. So it's not a place. Eastern Syria is not a place of great strategic interest to the United States. I want to say that one more time. Eastern Syria is not a place of great strategic importance to the United States. It didn't even come up in my meetings when I was getting ready to go out as ambassador in 2011. Didn't even come up. It matters to Iraq. It matters to Turkey. But it doesn't really matter to the United States. Western Syria does matter to an extent. The refugees that have flooded Europe, the refugees that have flooded Lebanon, that have flooded Jordan, gone into Turkey by the millions, who caused all those political problems in Europe two years ago, they're from over here. This is where the big cities are, in western Syria. So if you're worried about, like, are they going to be able to go home? That has nothing to do with where our forces are in eastern Syria. That's western Syria. And we're not even a player in western Syria. There are peace talks underway that the Russians are sponsoring. The Americans send one person as an observer. He doesn't even speak. So in a sense, 
the Americans have already given up the game in the West. We're so far out of it now, I don't see how we can get back into it short of a massive military intervention. Kind of like Baghdad, 2003. And I would be the last person, having spent five years in Iraq during the war, I'd be the last person to say that's what we want to do. So this is done. It's over. And so, Patricia, the answer to your question is, the one place where we're still involved in Syria doesn't really matter long term to us. We were concerned about getting rid of the Islamic State and getting it under control, and that's largely done. And so my recommendation, and I put this in a Foreign Affairs uh, magazine article this month, is to declare victory and go home. Tell her next time at least 30 minutes. <laughs> On the western side of Syria, yeah. uh, the problem is already over. Uh, President Obama abandoned uh, Syria at the time when the revolution was at its peak. And he Vacuum, which was quickly occupied or filled by the Russians. Mm -hmm. Do you see and the Iranians. I think and the Iranians. And the Iranians. Yeah. Do you see any possibility of maintaining uh, the Western powers as one unity, or will there be division? Mm. One, one more uh, yeah. question. On the eastern side, it seems that the last ship of the puzzle is now being uh, built as the United States decides to move out and, and uh, abandon it as they abandon the western side. Yeah. So. Um, Mohammed's question is, is it possible to imagine that Syria is going to be divided, that it's going to be partitioned? And if you read uh, Foreign Policy Magazine's website, and I recommend it highly, foreignpolicy.com, there's an article by a former Obama official named Alex Bix, which said that Syria is headed towards partition. And he's basically saying it will be divided between the Syrian Kurds, this little area is still controlled by the opposition, and then Assad's elements here. Sort of divided into three pieces, if you will. The reason I doubt that is that Bashar al-Assad has consistently said that he's going to retake all of the country. And so while there may be people who would like there to be a ceasefire, and would like the fighting to stop, and to accept this kind of division, at least informally, I don't think Bashar al-Assad is going to do that. In fact, today, again, one of his spokespeople, a woman named Buthena Shaban, uh, said they're not going to accept that this is some kind of separate autonomous region. They will not accept it. Um, my guess is because the oil wells are up here and over here on the east side of the river, the Syrian army will keep advancing. They'll do it very slowly, step by step. They're not that strong. 
They can't take everything all at once. This is not like a, a Nazi Germany blitzkrieg of 1939 or 1940. It's step by step, village by village, uh, very slow. So that you might take weeks before you really notice that there's a new offensive underway, but they've gained ground. But I don't think, Mohammed, there's going to be any agreement on a partition. This is not like Bosnia in 1995 when the Americans were able to negotiate a date and a sort of a, the establishment of a new country out of old Yugoslavia and, and Serbia. This is a great discussion of uh, Assad and the Kurds, but down on the bottom of the map is Saudi Arabia, and there have been some remarkable events yeah. in the last uh, hours and days. So I've been asked, just before you leave the rostrum sometime tonight, would you please make a comment and give us some perspective on what's happening there? Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm hardly a Saudi Arabian expert. My wife, Allison, is here served in... Saudi Arabia, but I never did, yeah. so, yeah. You can make it a duet. Yeah. Uh, sir, thank you. Uh, yeah, so you knew Qasem Soleimani. I do, yeah. Do you know him personally? Uh, when I, was, I just got back from Jordan. So oh, okay, yeah. yeah it's great to meet you. Um, uh, I just, like I said, I just got back from Jordan. I got to work with all the Syria. Oh. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, yeah. I just uh, returned from Jordan, and I was also an international relations major, and as well as international service at AU, I did a lot of uh, oh, okay. a lot of policy stuff. Great. Place. Um, but with my question for you, I guess, and I'm, I'm fascinated to ask. So I know you made mention of the Syrian army, um, and I agree with you that they are going to attempt to try to consolidate and control even further beyond yeah. population centers, especially because um, their need for resources are rebuilding it. Um, just maintaining their hold over the country. But I'm just thinking about long term. When you mentioned the Syrian army, to me, the Syrian army, and this is my perspective based yeah. on reading, but it seems like the Syrian army is pretty much a defunct force. It's not really, it's more almost like malicious in a sense, maybe comprised of Druze and, uh, you know, Christian yeah. groups like that. And, um, and then in addition to that, you have the Iranians there, of course, which you mentioned the IRGC. You have Afghan Hazaras that yeah, the right. brought in. Um, yeah. as well, like, it's a hodgepodge. Exactly, with all these groups too, so what, and then the Russians, of course. So what I'm wondering is, short term, I can see kind of how they could accomplish that, but long term, how would they maintain that? Because I'm looking at the Russians, the Russians, of course, had interest in the port of Tartus, because mm -hmm. that was one of their own naval force. They'd like to have an air base there, expand their footprint in the Middle East. I can see that. I think Hezbollah will eventually return too, because of domestic issues at home, Hurry, everything going on there. Um, so I'm just wondering, do the Iranians plan to have a long-term footprint? Like, who's really going to facilitate um, yeah. maintaining Bashar al-Assad in power? Because if you think about it, his army is pretty limited. So I think of the Russians in Syria a little bit of the same the way I look at the Americans in Iraq. Um, we sent in, under Obama, in 2014, we sent back to Iraq a couple thousand U.S. military forces as trainers, sort of steady the, the Iraqi army that had collapsed, begin rebuilding. The Russians are doing that right now in western Syria. They're beginning the process of rebuilding, rearming a regular, organized, uniformed Syrian army. And I don't think that's going to be a fast thing. It took us what, three years at least in Iraq to get 
the Iraqis to where they are, and they're still, yeah, the Iraqis are still kind of wobbly. So I would assume the Russians will have the same kind of time frame and resource draws, etc. So I agree with you that the Syrian army tomorrow or the next day is not going to be a rough and tough machine. As I mentioned, it's not going to be a blitzkrieg. Um, but the Iranians are all in. Let's say that again. The Iranians are all in. They have suffered just in their own forces over a thousand casualties in Syria and they have lost about 18 generals. I want you to think about that for a minute. 18 generals. How many generals did the Americans lose in the long Iraq war? Zero. And I'm not criticizing them. But it tells you that the Iranian generals get right up close to the fighting when they're directing these militias that they've sent over. They're right up in the front lines. They're very, very committed. So I don't think the Iranians are going anywhere. My guess is they're going to stay. What this means for Israel in particular, I'll go over to this side. Israel fought a really tough war in 2006 against Hezbollah in Lebanon. Right down here. The next time there's a war like that in 2006, if there's another 2006 type war, the next time it's not going to be Israel against Hezbollah. It's going to be Israel against Hezbollah and the Iraqi Shia fighters and the Afghan Shia fighters and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. And that's why the Israelis are so concerned. Because the Hezbollah fighters might number 10,000, 12,000. The Iranians have 50,000 at least. So all of a sudden, the Israeli strategic situation is different. That's why Prime Minister Netanyahu keeps sending delegations to Washington for urgent discussions on what to do about this Iranian presence in Syria. But again, I say to you, is eastern Syria the way to fix that? Sometimes we have a hammer and we're just looking for a nail. <laughs> Uh, my question is globally, what are, the, what are the most profound implications of the dismantling of the State Department? Foreign policy in the 21st century is so much more than just people going to cocktail parties or people dressed in nice jackets going and having tea at the foreign minister's office or at the aid to the foreign minister's office. It involves scientists. It involves um, agriculture specialists. It involves health specialists. It involves legal experts and counterterrorism experts and military experts and arms control experts. It involves such an array of people that you need a team leader to prevent all of these very capable wild horses from running in a million directions. The team leader is supposed to be the ambassador. The ambassador is one who's supposed to know I've got 25 really strong team members here in my embassy working on everything from interdicting narcotics 
to military assistance to working on an investment trade agreement. That, that's the job of a senior State Department officer. Not that he's going to go in and like fix by himself the narcotics production problem. He's got a team doing that. He's not going to go fix the Iraqi army. He's got a team doing that. But he's got to understand how these pieces fit together. When you lose half of your cadre of senior experienced managers, when you lose half of your experienced cadre of leaders, your ability to function well in a coherent manner in these overseas places is obviously diminished. I'm not saying we're going to have a diplomatic crisis tomorrow or the next day, but I think our ability to affect change gradually, but to affect change, and our ability to get in front of issues ahead of time because you have people who say, oh, I can see a problem coming. I saw something like this five years ago in another context. I think that's compromised. And so we still have a State Department. It's just not as good a State Department. And we will suffer for that. everyone hear the question? Yeah. So uh, the answer is, I don't know. It might have. We know what happened when he didn't. Um, it's not a secret that uh, the State Department, me and uh, John Kerry, whom I think very highly of, uh, argued vehemently behind closed doors that we need to do the strike. Um, that we needed to do the strike for three reasons. Number one, we needed to deter Assad from doing it again. No more chemical weapons use. Deterrence. Number two, we needed to do it in order to put some pressure on Assad to go to the negotiating table, that if we gave him a sound thwacking, he might sort of say, wait a minute, and agree to go begin a negotiation on a political deal. Not that he was going to agree to step down. We understood that. But at least to get him to the table. Um, and number three, as a signal to the moderate opposition, which was still very much in the field at that time, that the Americans sympathized with their civilian casualties, that we cared, and that we wanted the moderates to prevail in their own battle inside the opposition between moderates and extremists. I mean, I personally think those were strong reasons to do the strike. We lost the argument. And to be fair to President Obama, I, maybe I should say, do you know why he didn't do it? No. Um, I'll tell you why he didn't do it. Um, he didn't do it because he thought if he did the strike, if he did the strike, suppose Assad two weeks later used chemical weapons again. Then what? 
Well, then he'd have to do another strike, wouldn't he? And he'd probably have to do it harder than the first one, right? Then suppose, because Assad's troops were having a hard time, he used chemical weapons a third time. Well, then Obama's got to strike a third time and even harder. And there's an escalation that starts. But it's not Barack Obama who controls it. It's Assad who controls it. It's Assad who decides when he's going to use chemical weapons, not Obama. Obama didn't want to get into a situation where the Americans were being pulled into ever-growing amounts of escalation and, he, and the Americans weren't fully in control of it. This is, I did it this way, slippery slope going up. But you can think of it that way. The argument that I made in the administration was, you're right, it could be a slippery slope, but every slippery slope has off-ramps. Just like on the highway, the truck has the, you know, when you lose your brakes, you can go off the ramp. We lost the argument. And I, uh, to be, another thing to be fair to Barack Obama, the Congress, and he wanted their support. This is a big deal for McNamara in Vietnam. Do you have congressional support? Do you have public support? The Congress, we had a lot of big talkers. A lot of big talkers in the Congress. You know, hit him, hit him. When it came time to vote, they didn't want to vote. They did not want to have a 2002-like vote on their record. So we got a vote out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. All those tough Republican congressmen on the House side, when we said, but we need a vote, they were like, can't do that. OK, we're running out of time. So please, questions only, no preambles. Yes, Thank you so much for your presentation. Uh, I'm a Syrian civil rights activist, uh, and I used to be in the front line from the beginning of the Syrian revolution, even though I'm not Kurdish. This is your question. My question is, does America have the power to force uh, Syrian government or Russian or whatever to stop air force in Syria? If yes, thank you. Uh, if yes, if you said yes, how come on the on the yellow territory or let's say on the yeah. Kurdish area, how come no air force there? Right. And if you said no, why you why you let yeah. people to die all that yeah. year? So, as I said, there is over these Kurdish-controlled areas in northeastern Syria, there is a de facto American no-fly zone, and it has been there since 2015. One time last summer, the Syrian Air Force went into that area. We shot the plane down immediately. So there is a de facto no-fly zone. I can remember when I was in the Obama administration and we were talking about no-fly zones and we were told it was going to take hundreds of aircraft and 1,500 missions a day, etc. Uh, anyway. Um, Sometimes the military exaggerates when they don't want to do something. Uh, now, now, in 2017, if we were to try to put a no-fly zone over, for example, that eastern suburb of Damascus in western Syria, that eastern Damascus suburb, which is undergoing heavy, heavy bombing yesterday and today, heavy bombing, um, we would almost certainly come face-to-face with Russian fighters. 
How many of you, how many of you are prepared to go eyeball to eyeball and risk an all-out confrontation with Russia over the eastern suburbs of Damascus? How many of you are willing to face them down over the eastern suburbs of Damascus? Exactly. I, we had this conversation way back even when I was in the administration about how far are we willing to push the Russians. So in the end, now in 2017, the Russians have a greater interest in Syria than we do. And so we're not going to challenge them for the control of the airspace. You can say it's immoral. You can say that the Americans aren't protecting civilians, and I would agree with you. But I would also say, is it responsible for the Americans to risk World War III with Russia because of the Ghouta Sharkia, because of the eastern Ghouta suburbs of Damascus? And that's what we're talking about. So it's not the same as 2011 anymore. It's changed. Yeah, um, so, if we wait for the mic and questions only, if we do get out of the strategically out of war, uh, then what? Um, I would presume what will happen is you'll have fighting between the Syrian Kurds and the Bashar al-Assad government. Probably Turkey will help. Bashar al-Assad against the Kurds. Um, the Iranians will help them and the Kurds will lose and they'll end up negotiating, if I say surrender, that's probably a little bit of a strong word, but they'll negotiate an agreement that restores Bashar al-Assad's authorities largely. Ambassador, could you end on the Saudi note? So we have a young man who's grown up in a very privileged environment, but he's a very smart man, according to people who've met him that I know. And he wants to change things in a hurry the way young men often do. I'm not saying that the change he's bringing is all bad, but he's sure bringing a lot of it all at once. So uh, he's taken on the religious establishment, and let's be honest, the Saudi Wahhabi religious establishment is a real problem. And so I'm glad he's taken it on. I've, I've seen too many crazy speeches from Wahhabi imams in Saudi Arabia that are broadcast on television and they're all over the YouTube. I'm glad he's taken them on. But then at the same time, he's decided to start changing things such as women's rights and giving women the right to drive. Again, I can't say I'm against that. Of course I'm in favor of that. But it's a, it's a conservative society. How much change can they absorb quickly? Think about the stresses in the United States society in the 1960s. Um, he's got a bitter war going on in Yemen on their southwest border. In fact, Riyadh Airport was almost hit by a missile the other night. Um, so they got this war going on. And now he's decided to completely overturn the way the government works. It has been by consensus within a large ruling family, hundreds 
of princes, thousands really, but I think only hundreds matter. But it has largely been done by consensus. It's very slow. It's not flashy. Uh, and it, it, in general, has been cautious up until this young man, Mohammed bin Salman, became the de facto crown prince. So we're seeing Saudi now sort of entering a period of both external difficulty, places like Yemen, the confrontation with Iran, at the same time that they're undergoing massive change, reform uh, inside the country all at once. Um, I was in junior high in 1968, but I still remember watching the turmoil in this country. And I guess uh, Larry O'Donnell's just put a book out about the 1968 election. Um, so that's in a society that was relatively flexible, had ways of adapting that we're not sure Saudi Arabia has yet. So I would assume we're going to have some turbulence. But that does not mean that, that the government's going to be overthrown. There is no Ayatollah Khomeini for Saudi Arabia. There is no leader of an opposition that could, could mobilize people behind a movement, behind an opposition party, behind an Islamic opposition movement. There is no such thing right now. That, uh, that would be something to look for over the months to come. Does that gel? Um, and I would assume if it gels inside Saudi Arabia, the government will cut it off very quickly and very repressively. So I, I, my sense is we're about to enter some turbulence. Please fasten seatbelts. Um, I, I myself wouldn't throw a whole bunch of new money into Saudi Arabia, but neither am I panicking. As I said, some of these reforms are overdue. And it's worth remembering that while outside this looks like a power grab, inside Saudi Arabia, the arrest of a lot of these businessmen, Walid bin Talal, that's a, that's a huge name. But inside Saudi Arabia, it's being portrayed as a step against corruption, and it's getting a lot of support from young Saudis who themselves understand the system is rather rotten. And last point I'll make. I don't know, does anyone track Saudi foreign exchange reserves? It looks like this. It's very steep. They've uh, their foreign exchange reserves have dropped by about 60% in the last four years. So they have to undertake immediate, urgent economic reforms. They, I mean, they don't have the luxury of waiting 25 years. But it's a lot of change. Floating Aramco shares, privatizing the, the government, you know, the goose that lays the golden egg, and starting to sell shares in it. A lot of change in a very short time. So there'll be a lot of stress. Incredible presentation tonight. It was really, really extraordinary. 